Welcome to PageCast, a podcast series brought to you by Jonathan Bull Publishers, aimed to give you the story behind the story. By interviewing the authors responsible for some of your most loved books, we explore the thoughts, ideas, emotions, and creative processes that led to the writing of these books. If you're a reader with a zesty interest in people and stories, do stick around and enjoy what PageCast has to offer. My name is Jonathan Anser, and I'm hosting today's episode, which features three courageous and highly regarded writers, Liz McGregor, Karen Dolly, and Mark Shaw, who have all written powerful books that will make you want to lock your front door, get under your duvet, and never leave home again. Their books shed light on those who instill fear and terror in our communities and create havoc in our society. The violent gang bosses and their henchmen the corrupt politicians, crooked policemen, rogue intelligence agents, and double-dealing businessmen who make up the underworld. Karen and Mark's books expose the connection, the connections between the underworld and the upper world, while Liz's latest book details the personal cost of gangsterism. Liz's father, 79-year-old Robin McGregor, was murdered in his home in the small town of Tulbach in the Western Cape on the 11th of August 2008. The murder was especially violent. Robin was tortured and stabbed. The murderer, Cecil Thomas, was found, and during the traumatic trial, Liz discovered that he was a gang member. Thomas was a member of Vatos Locos, a satellite gang of the notorious 28s. Liz's memoir, Unforgiven, Face to Face with My Father's Killer, tells the story of her search to learn about her father's final hours and to find out what had happened to Thomas that had brought him to her father's home on the 11th of August, 2008. Liz, your father was a well-known publisher, an anti-competitive business crusader, and a former mayor of McGregor, who was just putting his life together after your mom's death when he was murdered. Can you tell us a little bit about him and what his loss meant to you? Um, well, um, my father, um, well, first of all, there were five of us who were born sort of fairly early on um, in their marriage. My mother was Catholic, so I think he spent most of his life kind of just, you know, coming to terms with that because he wasn't Catholic. Um, but we had quite a peripatetic life, and uh, he moved through several different industries. He was in sugar, he was in packaging, he was in, you know, uh, chicken broilering, and in each, in each, on, from each time he left his job, which he did fairly frequently because he got pissed off with the boss or whatever, he would, um, he noticed there was always a monster behind waiting to kind of gobble up that particular company or firm. And then at a certain point, he put it all together. He went part-time on his job. He bought a share in every single company on the, on the, on the stock exchange, he added them all up, and he realized that, in fact, 80% of the economy was owned by five companies. And this was kind of big information during apartheid because it just shows the concentration of wealth that had occurred under apartheid and that, you know, the, the inequality that started then, which persists now on the same sort of economic basis. Um, so he was well known. He became well known sort of later on in life. Um, and then as a father, he was deeply involved father. You know, we were a very close family and because we moved so often, we sort of turned in on each other a lot. And, um, yeah, so it was devastating. I think a murder also is a, an incredibly, it's a particular way, to, kind of death one has to come to terms with. It's not as if there was a gradual easing off. It's not as if it was expected. 
you know, we'd buried my mother's ashes the day before. Um, and, uh, you know, we'd seen him off. He'd gone to start his new life in Tilbach on, on his own for the first time in, you know, 55 years. And um, so just that, it's just the shock is absolutely overwhelming. The sort of devastation. Just, yes. Yeah. Why did you decide to go on this quest to come face to face with Thomas? Well, the murder itself, you know, was so profoundly shocking. But then two years later, it took two years for this to come to trial, even though they had this guy in custody for two years, um, was even, even more, in a way, traumatic because we had no idea what to expect. And we heard all the details of the forensic details of, you know, the terrible suffering he'd endured and the absolute terror he must have endured. And also for the first time, I heard that it was, um, as you said in your intro, a gang murder. And so all kinds of incredibly sort of shady members of the underworld then paraded through the courtroom, which was horrifying. And you're in this little enclosed stuffy space and there's the murderer and his manacles. And then there are all these kind of terrifying figures parading in front of you. And it's all so close. Um, so anyway, after that, I just thought I've got to get on with my life. I can't let this consume my life anymore. And then in 2017, I was hit by a car and quite badly injured. And then I thought, you know, given the sort of the, the death rate in our country, either on the roads or, you know, through murder or whatever, um, I'm going to, if I don't do this now, I might be dead next year. I think I will still have that PTSD, you know, that kicked back in from the murder. And I just thought, I've got to do this. Because it had been hanging, it had been hanging over me, you know, maybe because I'm a journalist, I can't just let things go. I need to find out what happened. And I also felt it was partly a kind of tribute to my father. I needed to understand what had happened to him in his last hour. So that was what set me off on this journey. One of the reporters who broke the tragic news of, of Robin's murder in 2008 was Karen Dolly. This was when Karen was a, a rookie reporter covering the crime beat at a Cape Town daily paper. Karen, can you tell us a little bit about your journey from a fresh reporter for 14 years ago, who's transformed into a hardened author who has two outstanding books on the shelves, The Enforcers, Inside Cape Town's Derby Nightclub Battles, and To the Wolves, How Traitor Cops Crafted South Africa's Underworld. Well, Jonathan, I started out as an intern, as an intern reporter, and I focused by accident, because I was an intern, mainly on court cases and breaking news. So, the first part of my career, I could safely say the first five years, which includes being an intern, was covering a lot of fires, a lot of natural disasters like floodings, going to lots of murder scenes, etc. And from that, I sort of, for lack of a better word, graduated into court reporting. And through court reporting, I got to know several police officers who were testifying, and I sort of got to know the lay of the land in terms of crime in Cape Town. And at the same time, I was sent to lots of press conferences, political press conferences. And it was through that that it all sort of converged. And I was seeing this politician saying that this police officer is clearly in this politician's bad books for some reason. And it's over, over many, many, many years, it sort of these different themes started taking shape. And I could see patterns, repetition. Yeah, and like what Liz said about seeing these scary or creepy underworld figures in a courtroom. I've sat in courtrooms as a journalist, not there because of 
some immense, horrible criminal event. But I've sat there because of what has happened to other people. And I've seen these figures as well. And what has really struck me over the years is that there really is no underworld as such. It really is part and parcel of our everyday lives. It's just very difficult to see. And a courtroom sort of crystallizes it into the underworld or the alleged underworld. So, yeah, that's how I got here. Lots of sitting through court cases, going to crime scenes, etc. And when did you decide, when did you realize that here was a book that, that talking about the enforcers? What were the circumstances that led you to, to, to actually decide, well, I'm going to embark on this project and, and write this book? I was a journalist at the time at News24, so I was covering a lot of online hard news. And what happened was that I thought we're sitting with so much information because I can't put everything into one specific article. We had so much surplus information. I thought there's something we can do with it, a bigger project, something online. And my editor at the time, Adrian Basson, actually suggested a book. So that was actually not my intention or idea, but that just happened the way it happened. And I see your latest book has been um, optioned by Spear Films, which intends creating a fictionalized series based on your account of copper collusion and gang warfare. So that um, is quite exciting. Criminologist Mark Shaw is the director of the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime and is the author of Hitman for Hire, Exposing South Africa's Underworld. His latest book, Give Us More Guns, how South Africa's gangs were armed documents the deadliest single crime in post-apartheid South Africa. Mark, I was looking at your CV. You've got a PhD in political studies and conflict analysis, a National Research Foundation professor of justice and security at UCT, and you have more peer-reviewed journal articles than there are gangs in Cape Town. So what's a nice, respectable academic doing getting involved with crime bosses? I'm not sure I'm a non-respectable academic, but uh, um, I, I, um, I, I, I worked a long time for the UN in different places around the world, uh, Jonathan, and then came back um, to, to Cape Town, to UCT, um, uh, because I wanted to come home. And, and Hitman came out of that period because when I, when I began working um, in the, the criminology center at UCT, there were there was this idea that we could monitor hits and assassinations. There was newspaper reporting around different uh, cases, and the idea was with colleagues uh, to see whether we could follow a broader number. And we got some funding from the Open Society Foundation to do that, um, and that's and that's how uh, the th that book uh, originated with this idea that. Uh, criminal or, or criminal groups and organizations are the assassination of people is is incredibly undermining or distorting of democracy and of course that's continued in South Africa as I think everybody on on uh, on this discussion knows and then out of that um, I subsequently left UCT because the global initiative has grown uh, very very rapidly and and in that period I came in and out of South Africa to to write the guns book at the heart of the guns book is the gun guru, Colonel Christian Prinsloo, who sold thousands of decommissioned police weapons to the underworld. It is quite unbelievable, a policeman pushing guns to gangs. 
Why did he do this and what were the consequences? I mean, to start with the consequences, I think the consequences have been, frankly, a lot of people dying uh, um, uh, and a lot of people being injured and the changing, literally the changing the nature of gangs in in the Western Cape, not only, I think there's evidence that the, the guns went to different places around the country, but sort of uh, it, it armed and counter-armed the gangs and, and led to uh, a, a, an enormous amount of conflict. Um, why he did it, I, I, I think for money, uh, and because he, he felt that he hadn't been promoted, et cetera, et cetera. And so this was a, you know, I, 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 I suppose it's like stealing a photocopy paper from the photocopier when you're not happy with your employer. And, and he, um, as far as I can tell until later, uh, didn't necessarily fully understand the, the consequences of, of, of what he was doing. But it is a remarkable story. And, and in some ways, because it took place over such a long time and because he's indirectly behind the killing, if you understand what I mean, in terms of selling on the instruments, um, I, I don't think it's recognized as as uh more broadly as quite uh, the dramatic uh case that in my view it, it, it is and it's it will have long-term consequences because those guns are still on the streets or many yeah. of them are karen the history of gangs is rooted in apartheid can you give us some context about south africa's gang world where did they come from and how have they evolved well, I'm going to focus on the 28s just to keep the answer as simple as possible. I was sitting in a court case recently involving alleged gangsters and a police officer or former police officer now, he was fired. Jeremy Vieri testified about this. So he basically says the numbers gangs, which are very prevalent in mainly the Western Cape at the moment, but not limited to the Western Cape, were created in the early 1900s. Um, they were birthed in prison. They were, they were prison gangs. And the, what really is, I don't want to use the word fascinating in a positive sense, but what is shocking, I suppose, is the rituals that govern these gangs or these so-called laws within the gangs. Because I realize that we view gangsters as criminals, but there is such intense criminality within gangs. So gangster on gangster criminality, which is not viewed as such within a gang. So yeah, these gangs sprouted several decades ago and under apartheid, apartheid police officers used gangsters to infiltrate different groupings, to scrounge information, and also to carry out killings. At the same time, those fighting against apartheid probably did do the same. And I think in the Western Cape particularly, we see remnants of this. We see, yeah, we see lots of claims of police officers siding with gangsters emerging. I do feel that's sort of a hangover from the past. And even the case of Christian or Chris Prinsler, that is a blueprint taken from the apartheid era. There were gun, there have been guns going to gangsters from the police for decades. And I think it's an absolute indictment on the state. The state has blood on its hands and it's never been held to account. Yeah. 
Liz, in Unforgiven, you explore your family history and write about a connection between your great-grandfather, Alexander McGregor, and Nongoloza, the father of the number, number gang, gangs. Can you tell us more about this connection between Alexander and Nongoloza and ultimately Thomas and what you find out about Nongoloza in your research? Um, yeah, that was a really fascinating connection that I had not expected to find at all. So I went up to northeastern Scotland, where my family came from, and uh, yeah, so they basically they were small-time weavers. And uh, Alexander left to come to South Africa to the gold mines to make his fortune at the beginning of the turn of the 20th century, and he ended up working at the East Rand Proprietary Mines which was then the deepest mine in the world and, um, you know, required great innovation. And so the, the sort of the weavers from Scotland who were quite te technically advanced at that point were, you know, were, were sort of given jobs quite easily. He was a, he was a pipe fitter, he was called. Um, anyway, at the same time, um, East Rand Proprietary Mines were allowed to open their own prison, Cinderella Prison, in order to get even cheaper labor. So black men who um, didn't have passes, found out passes, who were then sent to jail, mixed with hardened criminals such as Nungaloza, and got absorbed and were criminalized and were and therefore recruited into the into the number number gangs. Um, so this was fascinating. So basically Nungaloza and Alexander were at the East Rand Proprietary Mines at around the same time. Nungaloza would only have worked above ground because they wouldn't allow prisoners to work below ground. But in fact, Nungaloza ironically lived to be into his 80s, whereas my grandfather, great grandfather, didn't make it to 60, because anyone who worked below, um, you know, below the ground at that time didn't survive more than 10 years afterwards. Um, but Nungaloza, so I mean, basically, what I know about it, I've, I've read because you've got really great scholarship from Johnny Steinberg and Charles van Onselen. So, um, you know, he gave a statement to a prison warder. Um, in which he described how the gang was formed. Um, and basically he was, he felt he'd been um, unfairly treated by a farmer he worked for and he was going to go and work on the mines and he sort of realised this was really, you know, not a good idea because young men died. And he started this gang in the hills called, uh, in which he called the Ninevites. And it had a sort of anti-colonial mythology in that they... Um, um, they, they adopted the insignia and the titles and the and the and the ranks of you know the, both the Boer and British armies. So, um, one, so the fascinating thing when I met Thomas was that he described to me his uniform, which was entirely imaginary. But it was during you know he was getting quite sort of harassed during this because there were three of us: it was Chris Malchus, me, and Ellen, my husband, and. Um, we, everyone was sort of firing questions at him. And at a certain point, he was getting, you know, sort of a bit upset. And then we asked him about this, what is your uniform? And like he went to the sort of still place inside himself. He was, he sort of, his calmness kind of descended on him. And he described it. And he described it as if he was wearing it. It was real. You know, it was white shoes, um, white socks, white shorts, and then a belt with a red rose on it. And then a white shirt with two buttons at the top, one open shirt is always available because he was a Vafi, always available to his, um, you know, his, the general to whom he'd been attached. And one, uh, one clothes to show he was 
always disciplined, and then a little white beret with a red rose in it. So, I mean, I've realized then the power of it and the extent to which this man who came from a relatively privileged background, which was why his descent into this kind of viciousness was quite surprising. He came from a loving family. He was educated. He had a job. Um, this descent into the gangs and how, how in prison he'd become so profoundly absorbed in, in, into, into, into the system and the power of the gangs within that prison. Because I found the prison completely you know, dysfunctional in terms of, you know, they avowed the system of victor-offender dialogue and just did not work. I mean, from the moment I went to see them, they just ghosted me. So it didn't work. And as I understand it, it's because the gangs run it and the gangs decide who gets to see whom. And um, anyway, so it, that was that was quite a revelation. But now, you know, next year he comes up for um, parole People keep saying, asking me, what will I say? And, and you know, to me, it would be, a, I mean, I hate to say this, but, you know, it would be a danger for this man to go on the streets because he's much worse than he was when he went in because he's been further brutalized. He's been further indoctrinated. The only job he will get is selling drugs in some, you know, remote town. Um, you know, so, yeah. So the system, to me, I, was, I got really angry about this. It just does not work. There's no attempt at rehabilitation. He gets worse and worse. Those prisons are just, you know, basically training colleges for the gangs. Yeah. So it made me despair a little. Yeah. Mark, can you give us an overview of some of the gangs and, and what their business model looks like? Um, Jonathan, uh, I, I guess South African gangs are, are not unique. I mean, like organized crime and gangs throughout the world, they, as Karen and, and Liz have both alluded to, they're a product of social, economic, political failure, often uh, from excluded people who use symbolism to organize and, and obviously make money. The result of that, however, is over time quite hardened organized crime. And I, I, I think you do now need to see the South African gangs, certainly at the senior level, as that, um, uh, particularly their ability to penetrate the state and their influence on law enforcement, which which Karen has, has indicated, I think is, is hugely um uh serious we i i think the the some of the challenge with gangs in south africa is that we have a lot of people linked to gangs around a hundred thousand people um and a large number of gangs although broadly they are in only a small number of alliances and that's uh, i i think important to recognize and the, the academic question perhaps is is there consolidation taking place amongst gangs into um a, a larger but a smaller number of of groups, and I think uh, experience from elsewhere would would indeed suggest that that um, is is what is occurring. I I I I think the the business model is is to some degree straightforward, if I can say it like that. It's territorially based. It's based on the sale of drugs, so the control of territory for that purpose. It's linked closely to extortion. Uh, which has grown, particularly in, in the Western Cape, but not only. So um, payments are extorted from uh, uh, ordinary business. And it's linked to a range of other criminal activity, um, in, including uh, prostitution, amongst others. Uh, so you wrap that all together, you add weapons, um, and you have a, a, a particularly strong and, and, and volatile mix. What's important to recognize is that money is taken from that, let's call it street level business model, um, 
and uh, drawn into the legitimate economy. So the purchasing of houses uh, uh, is, is very common, the investment in, in other forms of, of businesses, the linkage, for example, to the taxi industry, which is a very useful way to, to launder uh, money, um, and importantly, the link to politics. And, and uh, uh, while this continues to develop in South Africa, if you look in the Western Balkans, Central America, elsewhere, the degree to which armed criminalized formations who have access to resources and muscle become important tools, I think is a very important red flag uh, um, uh, for South Africa, particularly when it's uh, connected to agents of the state within the, within the wider criminal justice system. So this linkage, this, cor this uh, corruptive link to the state is critical to, to the business model. Um, I, I suppose the last point to, to make, which for me is very important, is that there are different levels of gangsters, if that's uh, uh, what you want to call them. And there are the excluded people engaged in violence on a day-to-day -day level on the streets. And basically, they are casualties of a broader system. At the top, there's a limited number of leaders, many of whose names are widely known in the public, but there are some unknowns. Um, and, and these are really uh, the, 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 the bosses, the kingpins, who are able to often avoid justice altogether because they have access to good lawyers or, or, or corruption or money or the ability to move and, and uh, 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 avoid uh, justice, if you like. So that's, the, that's the, the, the business model we have. And I think um, political contestation, COVID, uh, economic challenges or decline all provide new opportunities for gangs and for that business model. Sure. Yeah. Um, Karen, I imagine when you were writing the enforcers, you had a spidergram with various threads connecting some very bad people with other bad people. I also imagine that the man at the center of the spidergram was Nafiz Modak, um, who was linked to the Guns for Gangs case and the protection racket industry. He's now been charged with the 2020 assassination of the police anti-gang units, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Knier. Can you tell us a bit about him and how your relationship sort of unfolded with him? So in terms of Nafiz Modak, or let's rather go back to that spider diagram or web diagram. I actually did have a web diagram. I bought a whiteboard with a koki that you could clean off. I bought one that was way too small. It's now in my bedroom's house. It's useless. <laughs> Little did I know that I would need probably a mansion of walls to get this up. And no, Nafiz Modak wasn't actually at the center of this because it dates back so long. Mm. The center kept changing, and that's why I needed a much bigger board. Um, Nafiz Modak's name first surfaced to me around 2017 when there was an auction in the northern suburbs in Cape Town and there was this clash, according to a Hawks investigator, this has come out in court, so it's court testimony, there was a clash between two groupings and the one grouping was allegedly aligned to Nafiz Modak and the second grouping was allegedly aligned to Mark Lifman. And what we saw in Cape Town after that were several strange incidents, there were shootings. It was it was actually really wild if you sit back and look at it from a distance by time. And yeah, 
Nafiz Modak has denied he's involved in any criminality. I did interview him back in 2017 before he was arrested for anything. I interviewed him and he said he's not involved in any criminal activity. He's very anti-drugs. And I can't forget, he said the reason why people want him dead is because he's involved in nightclub security. To me, at the stage, it didn't make sense. Like, why would, why? <laughs> There's so many other industries. Why nightclub security? But it soon became apparent. The more I looked into it, nightclub security is alleged by several police officers dating back many decades to be a front for, at times, rogue operatives and at times, clean operatives. So it's a very murky arena. They are obviously good, solid, decent nightclub security outfits. And then they are, of course, the ones that police refer to as being intelligence fronts. But yeah, um, over time, Mr. Nafiz Modak was arrested. Initially, it was for extortion-related crimes. Him and his co-accused were acquitted. And then there were sort of several arrests for allegedly getting hold of fraudulent firearm licenses from police officers in Gauteng. Then he was arrested in a case involving a former police officer who basically had an allegedly corrupt relationship with him, an I scratch your back, you scratch mine sort of situation. And then we've had this with regards to Colonel Schalkenier. He was arrested in connection with this murder. At the same time, throughout all this, leading up to his latest arrests, Nafiz Murak has been insistent that police are framing him, that he's innocent, and it's actually the police who are the problem. Are, Mark, are measures in place to make sure that another guns-to-gangs guns incident doesn't take place? I would, uh, um, I, I would want to think that there's much more knowledge about the degree to which guns have been leaking from the state over a number of years. Um, I, I, I think that's the importantly the first thing to say. I think there are still guns leaking from the state in, in multiple ways, whether it's from different cities or the Defence Force or, or whatever else might be the case. And um, I, I, I was hoping that the book would shine a light on that and, and uh, lead to, to, to a much higher profile around that. I think there remains uh, issues around the firearms registry and we could discuss those all day, I have to say. Um, uh, some of that, uh, um, uh, uh, Karen has already touched on, we're talking about people with criminal records able to acquire firearms. Uh, some of the additional things I covered in the book um, were around sort of uh, private security groups, which are almost like armed militias linked to the, the taxi industry the degree to which they've been able to access semi-automatic weapons. And so the general arming of, of society in multiple ways, um, facilitated by the state. So either the state system's not working uh, or state weapons uh, flowing out in, um, in, into, into the wide environment. I made some recommendations at the, at the end of the book, partly because I think reducing South Africa's homicide rates and reducing the level of violence in South Africa does rely on reducing um, the both the flow of weapons from the state, but also the degree or the ability of the state to manage and regulate the weapons that that are that are out there. Uh, to, to sum up, I think there's still a question mark around some of this as as we go forward. And 
we as authors and outsiders, I think, need to keep the pressure up in this area in particular. Mark and Karen, your books show that organized crime has spread to every nook and cranny in society. Um, the collusion between corrupt politicians and dirty cops and the kingpins behind these criminal enterprises who are often posing as legitimate businessmen. So one has to ask, has this war on organized crime been lost? I, I, I mean, uh, I, I'm not really sure how strategically we've, I, I, the, the term war I'm not very comfortable with, I have to say, Jonathan, but I'm not sure how strategically organized crime has been confronted at all. Uh, um, and uh, I, I don't think there's been a strategy from the side of the state uh, to respond, to be very frank. And uh, a, 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 an effective response would require, firstly, tackling the problems of people who are excluded and drawn into organized crime. Secondly, uh, really focusing on the resources and and um, and reducing the harm from the variety of criminal markets we are talking about. There are multiple from people to guns to drugs. We've mentioned them. And thirdly, to end impunity for gang bosses at, at the pinnacle of, of the system, the people on Karen's whiteboard, uh, so to speak. And you need a concerted strategy with political will to do all of that. And the reality is that, that there's been an overlapping of crime and politics, which has undercut the will, if you like, of, uh, of the state and its institutions to, to respond. What is required is a very, very clear strategic focus, the resourcing of that, getting the right people in place and supporting them politically. And these problems can, in fact, be solved. Karen, do you have any thoughts on this? Absolutely. I think your question actually perfectly describes state capture. So I think what we are sitting with is state capture. That is the infiltration of state structures by rogue elements within the state, by organized crime groups, by so-called underworld kingpins, etc. And I think we are still sort of on the tail end of state capture. We're not out of it. We don't actually know where we're headed as a country. So... In a nutshell, I would say at state capture, we're not out of it. It's not clear where we're going and whether we have the will or not to do it depends on who the capturers are in South Africa or externally of South Africa. And I'm not sure we know who those are. I mean, there was that now infamous photograph of our former President Jacob Zuma meeting with these gang bosses in 2011 to show the extent of that Karen, um, this is dangerous territory, and you have put your, yourself in harm's way in pursuit of, of the truth. Um, I know that you have received some death threats. How do you cope with all of this? Well, like, it's it's very confusing. People always tell me, oh, you're so brave. I'm really not. Number one, I'm, I'm genuinely mostly scared. And what happens is when I work, when I file my copy, etc., I'm not thinking... I don't think like a criminal, <laughs> so I don't think, oh, this is, we need to keep this person in check. I'm hoping, I'm imparting knowledge and getting people to understand, so I don't see it that way. But yeah, how do I keep sane? I paint my cat, I paint, I have a full <laughs> life outside of my job, basically, and I've got wide, broad interests that have got nothing to do, or I hope nothing to do with organized crime, yeah. 
and Mark, you've also written about all these crime bosses and meeting them at, at Rhodes Memorial Tea Room, which has subsequently burned down. But um, I'm just wondering if they've read any of your books and if you've if you've ever been threat threatened and, and how you cope with that. Yeah, I would say you get some feedback, uh, um, good and bad, uh, on Twitter or 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 privately, um, and and I guess it can make people angry. Um, my my sense is a, a little bit to well to recognize that what we're trying. I, I think, and I, I I I'm sure I speak to Karen, and, and I think our our objective is to try and shine a light on things, um, and I don't think there's well, to, and and to do that because that's part of the solution. That if these activities are hidden or not well under systemically understood, um, then we are unable to confront them properly, and and nonfiction is a very useful way of doing that. Partly because there's a lot of newspaper reporting, it doesn't cover everything. But if you, in the wider South African public, what you see is just a kind of chaotic um, reporting of, you know, lots of organised crime and 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 related matters. And I think what a book does is an allows an a sort of analytical view of of that. And and I think understanding is is the route both to personally knowing what to do about these things, but 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 also getting um, the 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 states and others to respond, and so nonfiction in South Africa, I think, plays a very important role uh, in all of its forms uh, um, uh, in in highlighting um, both solutions, but also the nature of the problem. Um, Liz, writing about your father's devastating murder must have been extremely painful, but there's also a sense that it was cathartic and that it did give you some peace. Uh, did it. Yes, it definitely did. I mean, I think, you know, um, what Mark's saying, just shining a light on it, understanding more about what happened, um, for me, is always a great relief. Just understanding the context of it and sort of contextualizing him within the South African, you know, history and present. But I also want to say that, I mean, I, um, I mean my, my most important thing for me was actually shining a light on the human the human toll of all this violence and all this criminal activity. So yeah, the human cost. The human and I think people this huge number of people are traumatized day after day after day in a society that is really traumatized. Karen, Mark, any final thoughts? I, I, I mean I, I, I this this idea of the human cost, Jonathan, I think that Liz highlights so well is very important because the I think the challenge of doing this work is there's a lot of statistics out there, but actually every statistic is a is a is a person, um, and uh, if 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 that's the only thing we can do is to highlight some of that cost, I think that's very important. I think Liz has put it very very well indeed. Well, thank you, Mark, Karen, and Liz, for your painstaking research that has helped us understand gangs, how they operate, and who crime crime bosses collude with at great personal risk. And thank you, Liz, for your profound and powerful book that highlights the human cost of gangsterism. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of PageCast. 
We have an incredible lineup of author interviews, so head over to our Facebook and Instagram and follow Jonathan Ball Publishers to stay updated and in the know regarding future episodes. Thanks for your interest in the story behind the story. Happy reading from everyone at PageCast. <laughs>